Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called No Friend of Caesar, The Antipolitics of Christ the King. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 25th, 2012. This last Sunday of the liturgical year celebrates Christ the King. The explicitly political language of the readings this week points to a profound paradox. Although much of Scripture is political, it isn't very interested in politics. <clears throat> in his new book, In God's Shadow, Politics in the Hebrew Bible, Michael Walzer says that he reads the Hebrew Bible like an ordinary reader. He's Professor Emeritus at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study and one of the country's leading political theorists. And although he says that he has only a schoolboy's knowledge of Hebrew, he's been reading the Bible for over 70 years. As a political theorist, Walzer is especially interested in the relationship between politics and the people of God. His book's most provocative thesis is that while the Hebrew Bible contains a lot about politics, it isn't really interested in politics. Rather, it commends what Walzer calls a radical anti-politics. Since God is sovereign, Caesar is secondary. The prophets, for example, are poets of social justice in Israel's most important form of public speech, but they're not political activists with any program. With their emphasis on divine intention as opposed to human wisdom, the prophets exemplify the Hebrew Bible's radical denial of the doctrine of self-help. The prophets, he says, disdain politics, in contrast to Greek philosophers, he writes, the biblical writers never attach great value to politics as a way of life. Politics is simply not recognized by the biblical writers as centrally important or a humanly fulfilling activity. <clears throat> the Gospel this week records the most dramatical political confrontation in all of Scripture, Pontius Pilate's interrogation of Jesus in the Praetorium. His threefold declaration that he found him innocent, then his death sentence verdict to pacify the mob, mock the Jews, and protect his job. For John, the passion narrative in general, and the trial before Pilate in particular, were political rather than religious crises. Jesus' trial and Roman execution epitomized a clash between two kings and two kingdoms, and the allegiance that they both solicit from us. The birth of Jesus signaled that God would bring down the rulers from their thrones. In Mark's Gospel, the very first words that Jesus spoke announced that the kingdom of God is at hand. John's Gospel takes us to the death of Jesus, and the political theme is the same. Jesus was dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons, all political. We read in Luke 23, We found this fellow subverting the nation 
opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate met the angry mob outside the Praetorian, then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus replied. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate went back outside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns befitting a man whom he miscalculated was a political poser. Hail, O king of the Jews! Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Thus, Pilate found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying his emperor. He caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. When Pilate crucified Jesus, he insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross, written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that he knew they would find repugnant, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the King of the Jews. It was too late. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. To be sure, with his mockery of the Jews, he wrote much more than he ever could have imagined. In his commentary on the book of Acts, the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan observes that just as pagans accused the earliest believers of cannibalism because of their Eucharistic practices, they also accused them of sedition because of their overt political implications of their confession of a kingdom of God and a citizenship in heaven. By confessing Jesus as Lord, they rejected Caesar as king. Fidelity to Christ the king was absolute and unconditional, whereas loyalty to the Roman state was relative and conditional. Charges of political sedition dogged the early Christians. In his little book, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, the historian Robert Louis Wilkin demonstrates the broad and deep antipathy toward the early Christians. For many years, Christians were invisible to most people in the Roman Empire. But across the decades, they earned a reputation as an alternate and antisocial community that existed on the margins of the state. They were fringe people. Christians were thought to be fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. Tacitus called them haters of mankind. They scorned long-held Roman religious traditions. They didn't go to the games. Many of their adherents came from the lower classes and seemed gullible. They refused military service and met for clandestine rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. In his book, The Octavius, 
by the Roman lawyer Manuncius Felix, written in the early 3rd century, a pagan critic complains that the Christians, quote, do not understand their civic duty, end quote. Their indifference to civic affairs undermined society. For their part, the early believers used two graphic images to picture the Roman state. Rome was first of all a ferocious dragon that stood in front of a woman giving birth in order to devour the newborn son who would rule all the nations. Rome was also a whore drunk with the blood of the saints. See Revelation chapters 11 to 13 and chapter 17. And so in her book, Revelations, Visions, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation, Elaine Pagels describes the book of Revelation as a piece of, quote, anti-Roman propaganda, end quote. When Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world, he didn't mean that it was merely spiritual or relegated to a future age beyond history or merely in heaven. The kingdom of God that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. The political, economic, and social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of warmongering. Liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy, not vengeance. Care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful. Generosity instead of greed. Humility rather than hubris. Embrace rather than exclusion. The apocalyptic visions in this week's Old Testament reading from Daniel trace the rise and fall of the greatest political kingdoms in human history. Babylon, Persia under Cyrus the Great, Greece under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. But above and beyond them all, Daniel foretells of a king and a kingdom that is not ethnically, spatially, or temporally limited. He calls it an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and will never be destroyed. Rather than an ethnocentric kingdom limited to one land and one people, this kingdom, says Daniel, welcomes all peoples, nations, and people of every language to worship the one true ruler of the kings of all the earth. The Lord's Prayer, then, just might be the most subversive of all political acts. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. People who live and pray this way have a very different agenda than Caesar's, whether Republican or Democrat, whether capitalist, socialist, or communist, whether democratic or theocratic. Why? Because they've entered a kingdom. They've pledged their allegiance to a ruler and submitted to the reign of Christ the King. And for further reflections, consider the poem of Origen, who lived from 185 to 254. 
<coughs> from his book Against Celsus. Origen writes, And as we, by our prayers, vanquish all the demons that stir up war and lead to the violation of oaths and disturb the peace, we in this service are much more helpful to the kings than those who go into the field to fight for them. Yes, we do take part in public affairs, when along with righteous prayers we practice self-denying disciplines and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led astray by them. And none fight better for the king in his role of preserving justice than we do. We do not fight indeed under him, although he demands it. Rather, we fight on his behalf, forming a special army of piety by offering our prayers to God. For books this week, I review a title called The Woodcuts of Harlan Hubbard with a foreword by Wendell Berry. Lexington University Press of Kentucky, 1994, 192 pages. The artist-writer Harlan Hubbard was born in Bellevue, Kentucky, and lived from the year 1900 to 1988. When he was 15, his mother moved their family to New York City, where he went to high school in the Bronx. He then attended the National Academy of Design and the Art Academy of Cincinnati. At age 19, he returned to Kentucky, where he spent the remainder of his remarkably singular life, in which he documented in his journals of nearly 60 years. In 1943, Hubbard married Anna Eichenhout. The next year, he built a shanty boat on which they traveled down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers for eight years, a story he tells in his two books, Shanty Boat, 1953, and then the posthumous title, Shanty Boat on the Bayous, 1990. After eight years of river rafting, the Hubbards built their own house at Payne Hollow on the banks of the Ohio River in Trimble County, Kentucky. There, as told in his book, Payne Hollow, Life on the Fringe of Society, they lived a life of isolated independence and radical self-sufficiency, with no running water, plumbing, or electricity. Whereas Thoreau spent two years at Walden Pond, the Hubbards spent 34 years at Payne Hollow, chopping firewood, tending goats, gathering nuts, fishing, weaving, scavenging the banks of the Ohio River, playing the violin and piano, and growing their own food. In his biography of Hubbard, Wendell Berry writes how he had a Blakean horror of the industrial mind and its products. He knew better than to believe that he could escape the influence of that mind or even put himself safely beyond its reach but he meant certainly to distinguish himself and his life from it. He meant to keep himself at some distance from it, 
He had in his mind and body the wherewithal to do that, and to a remarkable extent, he succeeded. Harlan Hubbard was best known as an artist who painted over 2,500 works in oil, acrylic, and especially watercolor. He also produced about 180 prints from woodcuts. This book under review contains about half of those 180 woodcuts, most of which have never been published. The woodcuts are a bit of an unknown of Hubbard's legacy. He wrote much in his journals about his painting, but hardly anything at all about his printmaking. We don't know the chronological order of the woodcuts, and so their arrangement in the book is necessarily arbitrary. He almost never gave the prints titles. Some are signed, but most are not. Like his paintings, the woodcuts are mainly, mainly landscapes of his beloved Ohio River environment. Many of them are of boats, barges, towboats, steamboats, shrimp trawlers, a ferry, his skiff, and many shanty boats. Most of the cuts were made from pieces of wood that Hubbard had salvaged. In his journal entry for April the 8th, 1963, Hubbard wrote, I work alone. Who cares whether I produce anything or not? or who appreciates it. Yet I believe a good thing will not perish. This wonderful collection of woodcuts from such a singular person is a testament to that truth. The author, Harlan Hubbard, and the title, The Woodcuts of Harlan Hubbard. For film this week, I review a movie from 2011. The title of the movie, We Were Here. In the 1970s, San Francisco, and especially its Castro Street District, was the destination for thousands of gay men. By 1981, though, the revelry of the bathhouses had turned into a national tragedy. This heart-wrenching documentary tells the story of the AIDS crisis as it unfolded in San Francisco through the stories of five people who experienced it firsthand. One of them remembers how early on he saw three Polaroid photographs taped in a store window depicting a man with the telltale purple splotches of Kaposi's sarcoma in his mouth and on his chest, along with a warning. Watch out, something's out there. There's no narration in the film, just the poignant stories of the five people, complemented by archival footage and still photos. By the time a reliable test for HIV was available, as many as 50% of the gay community was infected with the virus. Vilified by the public, shunned by Reagan-era politics, ostracized by their families, with no reliable medical diagnosis or treatment, they were utterly alone and with no place to go. What emerged was a compassionate and politically active community. They took care of each other. 
One of them, a nurse, Eileen Glutzer, says, I don't need to worry when I get old that I didn't do anything. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title, We Were Here. And for the Thanksgiving week, we posted a favorite poem of mine by Jane Kenyon. Jane Kenyon lived from 1947 to 1995. The title of Jane Kenyon's poem is simply called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 25th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.